Hi everyone, welcome to Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Mathis Grandchamp and myself, Loïc Meunier. We both pursue a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill in Finance. Thank you to our sponsors, Deloitte, Cement of Development LTD, and Red Bull. Scott is currently the host of Investment Management Operations Podcast, a new series under the popular Capital Allocators umbrella. Previously, he was a founding partner and the chief operating officers of Spruce View Capital Partners, which creates bespoke investment programs for some of the world's leading family offices, pension plans, and institutions. Prior to the launch of Spruce View, Scott was part of the founding team and played multiple roles at the High Vista Strategies, which created one of the first endowment funds following the Swenson model for institutions and family offices seeking attractive risk-adjusted investment returns to investing across public and private markets. Scott holds a bachelor's degree in international relations at Lake Forest College and an MBA from Babson Graduate School of Business. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Scott McDonald. Hi, Scott. Thank you for for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. To start the interview, uh, I'd love to hear about your background and history and how you ended up as the host of Investment Management Operations Podcast. It was very unexpected. And and so I had actually had spent the last almost 20 years kind of building two companies from scratch. So taking them from zero revenue up to about $4 billion in assets for each company. And then at, I was at a moment where I actually decided I was in a good spot to actually take the time and step away from the day-to-day and, and make some space to figure out what was next for me. And then about nine months in, I started to get curious about what I what I really enjoyed doing, and had I'd been done, I had been doing a little bit of writing, and on finance and all the things I've kind of learned about, and and I had started to shop the article around uh, to a bunch of magazines and newspapers, and that started to really intrigue me, and so I reached out to Ted Seides, who has a popular podcast called Capital Allocators. I've known Ted uh, kind of tangentially. We had some common connections. And he said, you know what? We're actually trying to grow this podcast. And how about you get in touch with uh, his colleague, Hank Stormack, who's who's the, I would say, the most uh, valuable player here uh, with, with my podcast. He's huge help on my front. And he said, actually... I said, how can I help you guys? I could help write content. And he's like, you know what? We're actually trying to grow the show. We're looking for somebody to actually explore the operational side of the house. Would you be interested in hosting? So I actually spent a little bit of time over the weekend thinking about it unexpectedly. And I came up with probably not really names of people, but just ideas. And so we, I called up five friends and we test piloted it. I said, hey, would you be open to an interview? This may end up in the trash can. We're not sure what's here. Uh, they somehow uh, agreed to do that and took their time, which is which is very precious. And and we looked at those shows and we said, there's something here. And everybody contributed in a really interesting way. And that's how it came about. So it's a totally random event. Great. Um, you also mentioned building a company from the ground up. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you come up with the idea and opportunity of uh, Spruce View Capital Partners and what that experience building a company was like? Sure. So to do that, you almost have to go back. So I'll go back to 2005 
And uh, this was at a moment when David Swenson, the the head of Yale's endowment, had written a book about how to invest like Yale. And so we, I, I ended up meeting some some people, uh, which ultimately became the formation of High Vista Strategies. And the idea was to actually build an investment office like Yale for organizations who did not have the in-house capabilities to do so. So most organizations do not have the the wherewithal from a headcount, uh, whether you're Harvard, Yale, or any of these kind of large Princeton, any of these large institutions. So everyone kind of had, maybe they had a CIO and a committee and that was it. So we created a fund that actually invested kind of similar in design. So we had a, uh, Andre Perold, who's a very well-regarded uh, investment uh, and finance person. He spent his whole career at Harvard Business School. Any any hedge fund manager that went to Harvard Business School learned investing from Andre. So he had a wealth of knowledge, wealth of contacts, and we built that for, from from scratch. We actually had some some capital to back us to get to get the hires right and stand it up, and some working capital to do it. So we did that. We did. I did that for eight years and uh, took it from zero. And we I left. We were probably just just over four billion dollars, and exciting times. But what happened was during that period of time. People started to the larger institutions started to look for something that was more bespoke. So we kind of came in and said, "Here's your asset allocation. It's going to look like this, and so it's going to have this much private equity, this much hedge, hedge funds." But people really wanted to have more say on the fees that they paid. Fees were being compressed, and and also uh, the the change in composition because every organization is a little bit different. And so I was actually. Uh, had was speaking to some friends of mine that I used to work with back when I was in the mutual fund world, and they were leaving J.P. Morgan's pension plan. They had a very successful track record, and then what they were doing was something really akin to where the market was going, which was to build bespoke portfolios for large institutions. Uh, and so, kind of in the minimum hundred million mandate, they would come, and we would work with. With that organization, it was international pensions, international, uh, did a lot of work in the international market, Latin America, Canada in particular. One of our first clients was actually uh, a, one of the a very well-known Canadian pension. And we basically would build a custom portfolio for them. And then we would also educate them on certain areas. So we had one organization that the, the Canadian plan hadn't had a lot of exposure to hedge funds, for example. So we would spend time under presenting to the committee what a hedge fund was, the pros and cons, and really kind of shepherd them along the, the process to help them understand at least how we were thinking. I mean, they knew what they were doing, but we we kind of shared our view of the world. And that's kind of how it came to be. Thank you for that. Super interesting. And we'll dive into it a little bit later, but um, I want to go back a little bit um back in time and before Spew's view and before even being host of, of the podcast, um, what introduced you to the world of finance and the operational side of business? Again, totally by chance. So I was a, so I was an international relations major. So there's a, what I've observed over time is that there's a pattern here with, with, for me. And that was, I like a lot of different things. I'm very exposed to, uh, if you look at my background, so international relations is is something that's at least where I went to college with Lake Forest College in Chicago area. And then basically it is a combination of economics, accounting, 
political science uh, and you had to minor in a foreign language. And so I took that. I also did a lot of writing. I wrote for the newspaper. I did some PR work. I really liked the writing part of it. And I thought I was going to be a writer. And I really enjoyed that. And then my father handed me my student loan bill. And then I looked at that number and I said, I don't think I can be a writer right now. And so he actually worked in the banking system. He he actually was one of the he spent a lot of time in technology and built one of the first CRMs within the banking. So before Salesforce and Siebel Systems and Oracle, he actually built an in-house, helped be part of a team that built a system uh, for what's now Bank of America. Uh, it was actually worked for a, a place called Bank Boston, which is like a predecessor, predecessor firm that does that. So he actually, by coincidence, was commuting. He took a ferry boat, which he did every day to, into Boston from, I, I grew up on the South Shore. And he sat next to somebody who was looking to hire an accountant. And he said, you know what? I have somebody for you. So he came home and he said, I met somebody on the boat and you should talk to them. And then before you knew it, I had in the job doing, doing accounting in the mutual fund world. That's how it all started. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about accounting and I think Matt and I have both kind of analytical skills, but we deeply enjoy the, the operational side of the business. But what made you choose to work on that side? Um, so my question would be, what, what would be your suggestion to people in our situation or wanting to, you know, to, to work on the operational side of the business? I mean, a lot of it is just curiosity. I think partly was I've... I've done some investing. I mean, we all, this is, investing is going to be part of your life, whether you like it or not, as part of your retirement planning, your savings. So that's a really part. But I just really liked solving problems. And the operational piece of it is all about solving problems. So the big attribute you have is if, if everything is going fine, nobody says anything. But if something's going wrong, you're going to hear about it. And so I always enjoyed enjoying that piece of it. And I think my curiosity around it, I started to really get into the operation. One, I, as I mentioned, I got into it by chance. And then I just never pushed on that investment door. It just the, the opportunities that were presented to me really were in legal. So I went from accounting, I worked for a legal department. And then just at that point where there were pr more problems in the industry and it was in, in the compliance so the regulatory framework started to deal with that and and present itself. And so that became a real job. If you go back, you know, I, so this is kind of early 90s at this point. But if you went back 10 years, that, that job probably did not exist. So there's a huge opportunity there for being aware of the, as, as market shift. And, and, and there's opportunity when the door opens. So there's a new door, the door opens and you actually, so you can actually get, uh, get into these areas with these market shifts. And, and, and for me, that's just kind of how it happened. I would, I would say it's not by design. It was by just by like where my curiosity went. And you mentioned solving problems. Would you say that's the most fulfilling part of your job? That's what you like most about your job? I would say that there's, there's two elements. I think one, solving problems, and then also trying to figure out you're always under at least the best managers I've worked with and the best COO, CFOs I've ever either worked with or for have always thought about continual progress. So running an investment business is really complicated. There are a lot of moving parts. You have assets flowing in, you have assets going out, technology changes, people changes, but also I really enjoy work partnering with other people to help 
figure that out because the operations piece is it is the centerpiece of how it all works. I mean, you need the you need the operational piece to do it. So if I want to invest in a private equity fund and the investment team says, Oh, I really like this, I really like this investment fund. In order to make that happen, there are a lot of handoffs uh, that need to occur in order to do it properly. You can do it hastily, but in this day and age in institutional investing, all organizations have an institutional process, and that involves accounting, legal. Like, for example, I was interviewing somebody who's the C CFO of CDPQ, and one of the largest Canadian pension plans, and she talked about like on their deal team, uh, it was basically like their tax person is is the one that really deals. Like once they decide to go forward, then their tax people look at it because that's the that's the most important thing because most likely that's where things may go off the rails on a deal. So it's it's just about dealing with that integration uh, across stakeholders. Hmm. Great, uh, and you, you know you ran your own firm, and how's your current work life balance, and how did it change over over the course of your career? Yeah, it's definitely definitely changed a lot. I mean, these days, I obviously I spend most of my time doing the podcast. I also advise a few companies, so it's it's I we I partner with those advisory clients. It's it's a fairly light lift from my perspective. I think I'm helpful to them, and and then so most of my time is really thinking about wellness and being outside. I live in Northern Arizona. Uh, and outside, um, I live in Sedona, Arizona, which is uh, a place where you can be outside all year round in in shorts most of the days, not all days. We do get two snowstorms a year, but being outside is really important to me. But then also trying to trying to keep my intellectual curiosity sharp, and so working on these side projects. So I have a really good work life balance. I would say over my career, I followed a normal path, and and I raised a family. I have two kids, uh, and and basically at this point, it's it's uh, the, when I was doing that, it was up early. I was up at five, get the kids ready for school, get off, and so and then I was back. I'd be I'd be out the door by seven at the latest, and then I would be back by six. So it kind of worked worked hard, and uh, and so you know it is a balance and and. It's tricky, but it, it was something pretty traditional uh, work-life balance for working the investment field in Boston. Now, shifting to the market segment, we touched on Spruce View Capital Partners. How would you say you uh, you went about differentiating your asset management firm from others? Yeah, in the competitive market, everyone there's a lot of competitive shelf space, and I think you need to figure out who are you catering to. Who are you talking to? So if, if even if I go back to my High Vista days, we were, I'll, I'll kind of use both examples. And so high, for High Vista, it was it was a turnkey solution for many organizations that just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. So we we're doing something pretty complicated, traded every single day. And and for a lot of institutions that they just didn't have, like if they have an, an endowment or foundation CFO, they just don't have the ability to actually be focused on the markets because they have a day job. Because usually in with these organizations, the investing piece is just a second, it's a secondary piece of the puzzle. Their main or their main job is to actually run the organization. And so we that that was the benefit. And and so and getting access to something that they had so 
there for High Vista was like, okay, we're going to give you access to some really good investments because we've been in the field for a long time and you can come in and get access to that. With Spruce View, it was a function of we had a bunch of senior people and we were not the high, we were, excuse me, we were not the lowest provider. So if, if you wanted the lowest fee, we weren't going to be your best option, but we were going to give you the best service available. So it was a function of you have a senior team. Everybody has 20 years experience and that's who you're going to interface with. It wasn't going to be where you're going to, you're going to meet the CEO. And then at the, at the, when you find, make the decision and then you'll never see that person again, the CEO was actually very involved in every single relationship. And that's, we felt as though that mattered because the people who hired us wanted that and we could provide that. And how would you describe your approach to fostering collaboration and effective communication among cross-functional teams? Yeah, I, I would say that, I like to say that over-communication never hurt anyone. And if you hire if you hire right with the right team members, that information can be really powerful. It's got to work both ways. I mean, I've had people work on the team that just want to be, at, they didn't want to communicate, they want to be on email, but I think that interaction is that's where you learn. I learned so much just being on the trading desk with a lot of really smart people. And even though that may not be part of my job, but I actually learned a lot just by, I used to sit near my old boss and he was the CEO and his former Goldman partner and just, just a wonderful person and really cared about his clients. And in most of the people gave, gave him money, gave us money because they were giving him money. They, Sometimes they weren't really sure what what we were doing, but they trusted him so much. And I think building trust and fostering that, it just helped me become a better, a better human being, a better, a better worker and and a better manager over time. And I think that that collaboration piece and that tested information flow is something that you're never going to get sitting in a remote work environment. Right. And at here at, at Spruce, you did you have did you guys have like a typical transaction? Like what what did a typical transaction look like? And w- what would you mean by transaction? Um, let's say um, you guys received investments from institutional investors or wealthy individuals or, you know, family offices. How did you go by investing this money into a specific project? Or oh, a sure. And, sure. Yeah. Thank you. So. From that on a transaction basis in that situation, so that in a bespoke arrangement, what would happen is we would have an opportunity to present. Uh, we would look at a private, for example, a private equity fund that has it's oversubscribed, and we would get an allocation, and then we would work and look at who who actually would be eligible to invest out of our clients, and then and then basically work through the process, work through the committee process to actually say, okay, here's the opportunity. We have some clients who just give us the full right to actually make investments without discretion, with with discretion. And then we have other clients who said, okay, we have a separate investment committee process. And then so we would present the opportunity. They might have an investment team and say, here's what we do. And then, and then basically from there, we would then, okay, we figure out, okay, here's, okay, we're gonna go forward with the investment. And then we would work through the governance process. We threw the operational piece, we partner with the account, the custodians, and and then we would make the investment. And, and, and we might even negotiate a side letter. So we'd work with outside counsel, the, the private equity funds council and negotiate the terms and the conditions of 
the investment that's in the PPM or the terms of the limited partnership agreement, which is typical. And you also work as a senior outside advisor at Cambridge Wilkinson. What does your role consist of? So that is a in a senior advisor for it. So they are an amazing organization. They have kind of DNA that grew up in the family office. So the two guys were there, worked for a billionaire and in early in their career and actually just had a, a, a really large connection to family offices. And, and so what happens is so it's really kind of you're they're an intermediary of providing capital to either private equity, venture capital funds. So they'll lend money, but they're basically through atypical sources. So if you were looking for a line of credit, uh, for example, like most or or GP financing, where you're basically borrowing money uh, because, because of the timing of capital flows. And so sometimes the banks aren't going to be available to you. And so there's other organizations like insurance companies that will actually provide that capital to you. And so that is, so for me, it's, I've got, a, a really high quality group of people that know that can provide capital. And then I have a network of people that might be looking for capital. And, and so it's just really matching. Sometimes I also have, they have, they, they do some fundraising on behalf of other uh, pool vehicles. And so super high quality stuff. You don't see that often just for, through their network. And it's just really trying to play an intermediary really on the credit side. Cause that's kind of, kind of where most of the activity is. And uh, they do some equity deals, but but that but it's that providing that angle, which is I think not really well known in the market. It exists, but it's not it's not something that you see. Uh, it's not like a, a your your main, most people will think of banks as pro- providing that capital, and not from private markets. Mm-hmm. Exactly, there's private credit funds, and like you mentioned, and could you could you walk us through an example again of a deal you supervised there? Uh, yeah, so I had uh, so for example, I've got. I've got one where a venture capital firm is looking to make an investment and and in a uh, they're actually branching out they're building a manufacturing plant and they're trying to clean up their balance sheet uh, and so basically they have some they have some debt and and just doing a number of complicating factors they want to pay off the people who they owe money to from some some other debt financing and so basically they go out and present that inf- so basically they wanted like 15 million dollars to basically go back pay off the people that owed them that they lent money to borrowed money from and then basically and then kind of recapitalize that in order to make an expansion in a manufacturing plant now, considering the increasing role of technology in capital allocation, could you elaborate on how advancement in technology have influenced or transformed the process of allocating capital? Yeah, it's a really interesting time. It's even though the, you look at like tr- traditional markets, like trade and settle, if I buy an equity, you can do it. You can do that through a number of different platforms, even us individually. But in private markets, it's still very much a PDF legal intensive process. So very paper driven, but we're at a moment where things are getting really exciting. So the digitization of this process. So we're now, so if in order for me to, to invest in a private equity fund, for example, you have to fill out a subscription agreement, typically drafted by a lawyer. That is now slowly becoming digitized. So there's organizations, there's a group called Pass Through. Uh, that is out in the market that's actually trying to do that. There's a, and then there's this really interesting company uh, that is called Tribexa, 
And they are basically trying to trying to build this digital infrastructure around that in order to make your life easier on this front. Because from an operational perspective, there's just a lot of things that need to occur. Like signatures, anti-money laundering checks. So if I get a, I have an LP, I have a client, I have to, I have to prove to the private equity manager uh, that here's all the information on that organization. And then they have to go off and check all the world databases to make sure that there's nobody on that list that can, actually can't invest. And, and so that process is now becoming very much streamlined and we have a lot of, we have a lot of room to grow on this. So there's huge opportunity there for FinTech firms to actually make this process really seamless. And, and so it's, that's, that's like really exciting for me and something that I think for you, for you, for people coming to the market, look in, look in FinTech. There's a lot, I mean, even if you don't code, there's just a lot of opportunity there because you're trying to applying those standards, applying applying the investment process into a digital framework, which is still really like emerging. So you mentioned digital infrastructure, streamlining operation, fintech. What trends and practices areas are you most excited for looking forward to 2024 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to even say the word AI, but I, I think it's worth exploring. <laughs> a lot of people are, it, it, it's, it's now where you have the ability. So I'll take, for example, if I'm a college endowment, so let's say McGill, McGill's endowments investing in a bunch of managers could be, you know, equity, fixed income, hedge fund, private markets, private credit. Every manager sends information to you. So the hedge fund's going to send you performance every single month. Sometimes they do it twice a month. Private equity firms going to send you something quarterly. A lot of managers write a quarterly letter about how things are going. So, some of these organizations, I was just talking to somebody at a well-known college endowment, they have a terabyte of data that they receive and they have a staff of 10. So I think the exciting point part is you're going to have these tools that sit on top of all your data infrastructure and can look at, okay, this manager, what are they saying? It can actually synthesize that information and say over the course of the year, like, like what do you see? And instead of having to read over the course of a year, four 10-page letters about what happened, it can actually summarize that letter. So I think that in the market, I think anything that you can do to basically bring speed to market is going to be a really interesting opportunity. That's the I think that's the exciting thing because we have so much data available to us, but we always want more data, but we don't even use or consume or or prosume, which is repurposing the information you would you consume. We just don't have enough time to do that. So there's a lot of information that are, that are sitting within our four walls that we haven't yet really spent time figuring out. So I think I think there's an opportunity there to actually really look at what you have available in-house before you start to looking at buying more data. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, and before moving on to the to the mentorship segment and uh, throughout your your career, could you share a scenario or, or examples where people didn't set up their businesses properly or or had some background issues that prevent them from getting a, a mandate or properly manage capital deployment. Sure, no, it's 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 uh, it's an interesting thing. So part of my being a, a former allocator of capital, so we would, I mean, a lot of the stuff is trust. So you can have great returns, but if you're not a nice person, a lot of people just there are some people who would be like, I don't care, returns are, are above all. But the organizations I work for were always focused on making sure that integrity was really important, and so. And human nature happens is it, since human nature is a, a big part of this is that 
mistakes happen. People make mistakes in their past. And, and we, I'll tell I'll take, I'll take, take us kind of two stories that have a similar theme, two portfolio managers. Uh, one person actually had both had a rest records. One actually was, uh, he, he basically, he was, he borrowed a friend's rowboat, but didn't tell him. And he got arrested for stealing a rowboat. And then, so he, and, and so we found that we pulled the report and it said, oh, he's, he was arrested for larceny. And so we're like, oh my gosh. And then we had the, we talked to him and he said, well, here's what happened. And he told us we were able to validate with the person he stole it from. And, but the, and he was like, he just came clean and said, here's what happened. And he kind of jokingly said, I'm a pirate, sorry. <laughs> and then, and so we kind of, we, in that organization, I think we got comfortable or we got comfortable with, with that because we just felt as though he was going to be truthful. The other individual was actually during his college days for, he was, uh, he was pledging a fraternity. He had to steal something at a grocery store. So he actually had a, an arrest record publicly available. And then, so we identified it and we just, so whenever you, you, I think there's the stats are like 10% of any, 10% of all allocations that you do, you'll run into an issue that you have to solve. And so part of it, you have what's called a false positive. So part of it is like, is this the right person? And so, so you have to kind of figure that out. But, but then sometimes you just have to have the conversation because you do not have enough information. In this case, the guy denied it, even though we had enough information available to us that we knew that was actually him. We could, we, we tracked it on it. He was a U.S. individual. He had, a, we tracked in a social security number, a lot of information we had that like, this is him. And he just denied it. And, and so we, in that instance, we just like, you can't move forward because if you're lying to me about something that happened 20 years ago, what happens when things are going to get choppy in the markets? Cause they will. What like how will you behave then? So we just felt his own t integrity is such a difficult thing, and so we just we just decided that there's it life's too short. Let's move on. There's another manager out there that we'll find. Great. So now shifting gears towards the mentorship segment, how big of an impact the people you surround yourself with make an impact in your career? Yeah, I would say if you can get yourself in with that right group of people. I mean, you become part of it. That culture, whatever organization you you belong to, you are going to be part of that culture and you're going to you will likely inherit those behaviors. You're going to see people who come to the table, the leadership and and as a young individual, you're going to say, "Oh, is that the right way to think about it?" And and so you're going to believe that that's the right way to manage and so if that person yells, you're going to yell. So I think I think being out there in the market and surround yourself in the right environment. I think that's really, I talk about this power of tacit information flow. I think just being around really smart people who can actually help you and you'll learn even though you, you, you don't even know it. And I think that is the most important part of that is being around people who have their successful people with good habits. And how should freshmen and sophomore students go about finding an internship? Yeah, I would say, interestingly, people want to help other people. So I, I would say build a network. I would encourage you to, to go on LinkedIn, find people that graduated from your school, find people who live in the town that, that might have an interest. I think people by nature want to help others and, and, and especially people who are successful. And if, you know, the 
a lot of times people, if they've had the elevator to success, they actually want to set it back down to the ground floor so other people can benefit as well. And so I think reaching out and doing that and, and, and you'd be surprised. I think that's probably the best way to do it. And those, and that's where you're going to find the opportunities. I think things like LinkedIn are very powerful for that, but also with jobs, it's very easy to press apply. And so if you looked in the today that if there's a job opening or an internship, you'll see like, oh, there's 500 people who applied for this job. And that's really discouraging. So how are you going to be able to stand out? And I think it's just be through connecting with people and say, hey, I applied at this company. I know you work there. Do you, can you tell anything more about it? I'm really excited about that. And I think if you can do that, but I would also think about Think about uh, taking time to learn, take risks. Your internships are a great place to actually figure out what you want to do, but it's also a great thing to actually say, you know what? I might be curious. I don't know if it may be an adjacent area. It might be a really great place to explore. It, it may Your parents may say, oh, you, you should do this. Beware of the shoulds. There's a lot of shoulds in the world, but explore because this is a great time to actually try something that you may love, you may not like it. You, I wanted a number of years ago, I wrote an article about this on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm, I do a newsletter as well. And I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I actually worked for a law firm as a paralegal. So I, if I'd gone to law school, this would have been a very kind of dramatic thing. But also it's like, I, I worked for a law firm for seven months as a paralegal. And I said, that's the last thing. It's a long story short, but I, there was a senior partner there and I was up all night and he walked in at three o'clock in the morning, a three-piece suit. And 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 then at some point he decided to take a nap. And he was like in his mid-60s, senior partner of the firm. And I just kind of said, that's success. That's success for him. That's not my success. So it, it, so I think taking these opportunities for internships and and trying to take the risks of maybe explore an area that because the, the risks are very low. And if you do a job and it's horrible, like that's okay. You the best thing you'll take away is that I know I don't want to do that. And what better way to actually, instead of select, it's about the deselection. Perfect. Uh, thank you for that. And would you have any tips for someone looking to break into iFinance? I mean, I mean, there's some common, I think, again, get out there and, and just hustle and, and, and talk to the right people. Just have conversations, be like, Hey, can I, can I borrow you for 15 minutes about like the role that you have? But I would say, make sure it's close to home. Like if you have somebody and you like, hey, you, I'm calling, I'm going to reach out to you and you have no connection. Like not, I think having a second degree connection or third degree connection is okay. Introductions are amazing. I would just say, hey, tell me about your job and what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? And then, and then just start to build up that network. And then if, there, and if there's, and I'm making this up, I, I don't know. I was just thinking about this. If there's a conference and maybe you can say, hey, I'm, I'm just a college student. Would you give me a free ticket? Like maybe try that. And it just, I think getting into the mix, there's a lot of shiny things out there in the market that until you're actually up into your elbows in it, you're really not going to know if it's, if it's fun or not, but be aware of what's fun. Yeah. And I think you're exhibit a of trying to help people because that's exactly what you did with us. So uh, thank you for that again. <laughs> um, on another side, what would you say your best advice is for someone graduating university right now? Oh, that's a, that's, I would say, uh, despite what you see on your phone, success is not a straight line. 
like I said, ignore the shoulds. There are a lot of them. I think just being out there, like you're going to get on the market. Things are not going to go your way. The company, even through my podcast interviews, most of the people, not most of them, but a lot of people have had things happen to them that were unexpected. And just be, be aware that it isn't just going to be up and to the right in success. So I've had somebody who a very successful private equity CFO, like she worked at Arthur Anderson that actually had caught, caught up in the Enron scandal. And their, like Arthur Anderson went down when she was there. Another person I interviewed yesterday that she worked at Lehman Brothers in 2008. So like stuff happens. So I would just be be okay with that. And it's not the end of the world. I've had, I had a, a somebody who worked at a, a, a hedge fund and he was telling me the story, like he worked at a hedge fund in, called Sowood that actually went under. And as, and he was brand, it was like his first job out of college. And it actually turned out to be, he actually ended up getting an amazing job opportunity as a result of that. And I think his trajectory has, has gone up as a result of that. So doors open, some doors, excuse me, some doors close and other doors open and that's okay. And I just be prepared for that. Sure. Uh, and now, lastly, moving on to the the rapid fire questions. In one sentence, how would you define would you define success? I would say for me, and these are all this is my perspective, and it's just like I like defining success for me is working on interesting projects with people you want to be around. And what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? The short answer is like, don't be greedy. I had a business professor. His name is Bill Stitt, and he. He once told me that, do you want to own a slice of a watermelon or do you want to own a whole raisin? It's entirely up to you. Um, and how would you describe your, your career in one word? Eclectic. <laughs> On a scale of one to 10, how important would you say your GPA is as a student? I would say early on it's a nine and later on it's a one. And what part of your day do you look forward the most? For me right now, I enjoy, so I, I live in Northern Arizona and I like hiking at the end of the day. So my wife and my dog, and we go for, go for a nice hike right out the door and up in the mountains where I can, we can be in nature. And that's really, really, I think helpful to me. If you wouldn't be in the financial industry, what would you be doing instead? I would be, I'd, probably be writing nonfiction at some level. I, I write a little bit of it. The, the, the good part is I do a little bit now. So I am folding in the finance. Uh, I love reading plaques about history. Like this is what happened at this point in time and unpacking that history. Cause I find that history, I think somebody said it doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And so finding and using those historical perspectives and how it might be, be right in front of us today I think in to write about that is, is, is a lot of fun. Sure. And you talked to, you talked a little bit about, about writing, but what is one book you would, you would recommend to our listeners? I thought about this a little while and, and it's something that I ask my, my guests as well. And I think for, for me, the one that is most useful, and it's actually a pretty easy read, it's called eat that frog. And it's, by the author Brian Casey. And it's, it's basically, I think the subtitle is 20, 21 ways to avoid procrastination and get stuff done. And so the idea is like every day, the most, the most thing, the thing that you want to do least do it first. So. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Scott. And thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks for the time. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or our social medias. Have a good one and see you next time. The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options, as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management, or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.